just continue to, to remember uh, the Mallorys. Um, but, um, but I want to direct your attention now to this passage in Mark chapter 9, where um, we who, like the disciples, can be burdened with brokenness and with the mess of this world, uh, where things are not the way they're supposed to be. Uh, God will reveal his glory to us and show us what is true and what is real, uh, give us a firm anchor, a firm foundation so that we can navigate life with the assurance that, uh, that there is a, a God and he's on his throne and he will bring all things uh, to, to his purpose and his fulfillment. So let's stand in honor of God's word. I'm going to begin in verse 2 and read through verse 13. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And he asked him, Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask for your blessing over the reading and the hearing and the receiving of your word. Uh, your word alone reveals to us the, the fullness and the sufficient revelation of, of what we need to know you, uh, to know you as you truly reveal yourself, not what we imagine, not what we simply hope, but, uh, but indeed what is, uh, what is worth a, a, a foundation that we can build our lives and, and, uh, and an eternity upon. So please do bless us as we receive your word now. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> All right. Um, I think in this passage, what I think would be really helpful is to recognize this, uh, the trajectory here. Jesus, in verse 2, leads them up a high mountain, and then in verse 9, uh, they come down the mountain, and that's really the arc of our discipleship. Uh, frequently, we feel like we're going up, and uh, we have these beautiful, um, impressive, and worshipful experiences with Jesus and then uh, we go back down and we're confronted with brokenness and difficulty and hardship and we wonder why. Um, so we just seem to go up and down, up and down. Uh, and, and that really is the trajectory of discipleship. But let's talk about 
You're going up the mountaintop for starters. Uh, we need to kind of get our bearings there for starters. And, uh, and, and be, before they went up the mountaintop, uh, if you're just joining us, um, we've been looking at a, a progression of, of you know, Jesus' interaction with the disciples, how really all through the first half of the Gospel of Mark, Jesus has been showing them his glory. And they've been impressed. And everybody, everywhere keeps remarking, he does everything well. And, you know, they just can't get enough of Jesus. But right around chapter 8, the end of chapter 8, and here in the beginning of chapter 9, there's, there's confusion that sets in. Uh, there's confusion regarding the identity of Jesus. And Jesus has asked, you know, the disciples, who do people say that I am? And everybody's got different ideas. And they haven't really nailed down the fact that he's the Christ, but, but Peter and the disciples have, have come to that conclusion. They're, they're clear on the identity of Jesus. He's the Christ. He's the anointed one of God. But they're confused about the mission of the Messiah. So some people are confused about the identity of Jesus. Those who are clear about the identity of Jesus are nonetheless confused about his mission as the Messiah. They don't think that the Messiah should suffer. What's all this language about a cross? What's all this you know, stuff about dying? Uh, and, and Peter even goes so far right, as to rebuke Jesus. Right? Like, I know more about your kingdom than you do, Jesus. Let's get a few things straight. No suffering, no dying, none of that. Let's just put that behind us. But Peter's confused. And now you know, we see that there's confusion not only regarding the mission of the Messiah, but the nature of discipleship. As we saw last week, Jesus is calling each of us to deny ourselves and to take up our cross, to take up this thing that the world considers abhorrent and, and, and something disgusting. Let's take up this thing that means that we deny ourselves, we deny our autonomy, we, we die to self-righteousness, we die to selfishness, and we take up this symbol of, of dying and death in order to have a new life. Uh, and that seems just completely counterintuitive to the world. So how do we get clarity about the nature of, of discipleship? So for the disciples, nothing is really what it seems anymore. Um, everybody's pretty, pretty disoriented at this point. Uh, everything seems great, you know, there's this big victory parade right up through chapters 1 through 8, and then Jesus sort of just messes with everybody's expectation, and, and now they're confused, and, uh, and it's a lot like what, you know, Aaron and Bethany are, are going through right now, where you've got all this anticipation, all this expectation, and they're expecting a healthy baby, all the indications were, were positive, but now the doctor's have come and they say we need to do tests and they speak in somber tones and it's just disorienting. It's confusing. Jesus, what do you mean? Why the somber tone? So as the disciples listen to Jesus, they don't know really what's normal anymore. This doesn't sound like what they had originally signed up for, carrying crosses and things like suffering. Uh, but they know enough that despite their confusion, they're going to keep trusting in Jesus, right? That's where Aaron and Bethany are. That's where the disciples are. That's where we need to be. We know enough to keep trusting in Jesus. And this is why, you know, Jesus is about to reward their faith in him by giving them a vision of his glory. And so he, he, even though there's all this confusion on earth, he brings them up to the top of the mountain to hear validation from heaven 
So you hear the voice of the Father speaking over the Son, right? And, uh, and you see that he is transfigured before them uh, in verse 2. And then in verse 3, there's this language about he, his clothing becoming radiant, intensely white. And there are these two prominent figures from the Old Testament. Moses and Elijah are there. And they're talking with Jesus, and they're having this little conference um, at the top of this mountain. And so um, I like how Tim Keller puts it. You know, Jesus produces this unsurpassable glory of God that's emanating from him. Uh, this is a scene that's, that, that's sort of deja vu for those who know the, the Old Testament, who, who remember when Moses went up on a mountain and met with the Lord and, and heard the voice of God. And, and Moses comes down and he's reflecting God's glory. But this is different because Jesus is actually emanating God's glory. It's not a reflection. Jesus is the source. And he's bringing God's glory and, and demonstrating it to the disciples. So, in fact, um, Moses and Elijah, they end up disappearing from view um, because they are testifying to the fact that someone greater than, than they are is here. And we read in, in, in Hebrews uh, chapter 3, for instance, that Jesus is counted worthy of more glory than Moses. We read in John 1 that uh, Philip found Nathanael and said, we found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth. So if, um, if you're new to the Bible, what you need to, 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 to understand is that all of Scripture leading up to this point is pointing to this moment where the Father speaks blessing, <coughs> excuse me, where the Father speaks blessing over the Son. And you hear this voice saying, this is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. He is the culmination of revelation. All the, all the, the law and the prophets and everything else that's ever been said you know, about what God's plan is finds its fulfillment in Jesus. So you've got the testimony of Moses and Elijah, but they fade from view. to allow for the Father to testify and to validate the Son. And this cloud overshadows them, the symbol of the, the presence of God, right? This cloud overshadows them. And a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. And then, of course, they saw no one there anymore but Jesus only. So this isn't the first time that um, there's been a voice from heaven blessing the Son. You remember at Jesus' baptism, we go all the way back to Mark chapter 1 for this, where, you know, this spirit descends in the form of a dove, and um, the voice from heaven says, you are my beloved Son, and with you I am well pleased. And you notice there's a little bit of a different pronoun used there. When Jesus is baptized, you hear the second person pronoun, you. And so the Father speaking to the Son and blessing the Son. And, and in this case, on the Mount of Transfiguration, the pronoun's different. It's, it's you know, God is speaking to the disciples, not so much to the Son. And that's important because the disciples are, are benefiting from this vision because they need to understand the glory of Jesus. That's going to gird them for what's at the bottom of the mountain, but we're, we're going to get to that in, in a little bit. So what... What uh, the disciples are seeing really is that, that the glory of Jesus um, 
comes from heaven, that, that Jesus doesn't need the, the glory of earth. He doesn't need the glory of, of, of Rome. He doesn't need the, the, even the, the glory of you know, the nation of Israel for that matter. He doesn't need any earthly glory because he has heaven's glory. And that Jesus doesn't need you know, the, the voice of the people to commend him because he has the voice of the Father commending him. And now they're prepared to listen to him. And they feel this holy fear of Jesus' majesty. That means they don't need to fear the world anymore, what the world can do to them. Their fear's in the right place. Their, their ears are, are, are tuned into the right voice. They see firsthand the, the real glory that, that this world needs to see, that all the glory of the world is just a, a faint impression of. And so... As the disciples are benefiting from this voice and from this vision, uh, we need to include ourselves in, in that group of disciples and ask ourselves, are we hearing this voice commending Jesus? You are my beloved son. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. I'm well pleased with him. As we hear that voice, do we know that Jesus, in fact, bears the, the glory that this world is searching for? Uh, whether you're following politics, or whether you're following the World Series, or whether you're following, you know, just admiring the, the beauty of you know, autumn leaves and so on. Everything that, that gets us excited, everything that, that, that captivates our attention really finds its fulfillment in Jesus. And that the Father is pleased with the Son, and are we pleased with Him? Do we listen to Him ultimately? Is His voice the one that guides us and directs us? Uh, as we walk this world's path. So it's pretty remarkable that Jesus comes and he rewards the disciples' faith, even though they're confused, they don't quite understand the mission and what's ahead of them. They're asking these questions. Jesus gives them this vision of his glory to help them, to bless them, to, to orient their spiritual you know, compass again. And we need that reorientation as well. Uh, I like in verse 5, there's something kind of comical here. Um, Peter says to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses and Elijah. And, and Mark includes sort of this commentary. He really didn't know what he was talking about, right? He didn't know what, what, what to say, uh, for they were terrified, right? They're having this vision of heavenly glory, and, and their fear's in the right place. Nonetheless, it's, it's a holy fear. And so, you know, this was, this was a, a really remarkable time, and Peter didn't know how to respond. This is not so much a, a transfiguration. It's called the Mount of Transfiguration. Um, it's more like what the, you know, the, the genre is called apocalypse, uh, apocalyptic you know, books of the Bible, and you think of Revelation where you have the, the revelation of Jesus Christ, uh, verse 1, chapter 1, uh, in, in the end of our Bibles. And when it, and when you know, Revelation describes the revelation of Jesus Christ, uh, that, that's the original Greek word, apocalypse. It's where we get our word, apocalypse. It's this unveiling, a revealing of the true nature of who Jesus is. You know, so Jesus didn't actually change into something new. When he, when he ascended the Mount of Transfiguration, he didn't put on glory. He didn't it's not like he didn't have that to begin with. It's more like, you know, the, the Superman um, thing where, where he takes off his Clark Kent glasses and people go, oh, 
It was like he was taking off this veil that was hiding the glory that he's had for eternity past as the second person of the Trinity, the eternal Son of God. So the disciples could now see that it was unveiled, this, this glory that Jesus has. Um, you know, I mentioned the, the, the glory of this beautiful, you know, peak of autumn, which I think we're in right now. And we were driving over uh, Afton Mountain yesterday on our way to a soccer game and just, you know, just gorgeous, right? And we look at these leaves and we go, my goodness, there's this glory uh, here in autumn. And we're used to saying, we're used to describing the, the fall as the time when the leaves change their color, right? It's the language that we adopt. But they don't, they don't so much um, change their color as lose their color. It's more accurate to say that they lose this green pigment. Um, you know, when you look at these maple leaves, there's the, the orange and the yellow and the, and the red, the carotene has always been uh, in these leaves all, all throughout the spring and the summer. The carotene has always been in the leaf. What, what's happening right now as we look around us in the fall, the, the lower temperatures trigger uh, a, a response in the trees to where the chlorophyll starts to break down. The chlorophyll is what makes you know, our, the leaves green. The chlorophyll breaks down. It fades away to reveal what's been there all along. And so what we're seeing is this unveiling right, of, the, of the glory that's been there all throughout the past several months. And now we're going, oh, now we see it, and it's gorgeous, and it's beautiful. And that's a way for us to think about what happened to Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. It's not like he put on glory. He's had it all along. But now we have eyes to see it. The disciples have eyes to see it. They are recognizing Jesus in his true nature. I mean, we're, we're kind of bumping our heads up against the mystery of the incarnation. You know, Jesus has this humility of being um, made flesh and embracing our humanity, and at the same time, he has the glory of his divinity, and, and how they are revealed to us, you know, really comes through our finite eyes. But there are occasions, you know, throughout the Gospels when people would get a glimpse of that divine glory, and those were blessed eyes that could see it. And Peter, in his, you know, continued confusion, blurts out, let's make some tents, you know, let's, let's, uh, let, let's hang out here. This is awesome. I, I want to stay here. I want to stay on the mountaintop. Let's build some shelters. Let's, let's camp out. This is like, you know, watching some movie where the alien UFO descends and, you know, the lights and the flashing and the wind and the clouds and everything and the UFO lands and the... E.T. gets out or whatever, and you say, well, I know what to do. I'll get my pop-up camper, and we'll just hang out here. This is great. It's, it's kind of a comic moment because Peter doesn't know what else to do. But it's, it's, it's really appropriate in another sense because what's going on here is Peter uses the word tent, and part of the glory of God is that one so glorious and so holy, so high, and, and lifted up, would, would humble himself and love us to the point where he would come and pitch his tent among us. And that's what John points to in his gospel. He says that the word became flesh 
and tabernacled among us, pitched his tent, literally, pitched his tent among us. That's why we named our church Tabernacle Presbyterian, because the, the beauty and the, the wonder and the, the unity that we have with God, because he came to us. He came down and humbled himself to become human like us and to pitch his tent among us so that we can have fellowship with him again, restored, and be blessed by him. And this is, you know, he pitched his tent among us and we have seen his glory. The glory is the only one of the Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. And, and that's this glory that Jesus is revealing to us at the, the Mount of Transfiguration. So Jesus calls the disciples up, right? And they have this amazing experience of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And then the glory fades, and it's time to go back down the mountain. And in verse 9, they came down the mountain, and he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until... The Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. What is that all about? We we all love mountaintops. I mean, I I don't know that every one of us loves the hike up to the mountaintop. You know, you're a bit winded when you get to the top of humpback rocks. But the view's great. The air's clear, you know, you can see for miles, it's, it's exhilarating. But eventually you've got to go back down. Eventually it's time to trek down the mountain to the trials that we left at the bottom, the confusion that we left at the bottom, the mess that waits for us, you know, back at the bottom. And as they're coming down the mountain, Jesus kind of is back on message about dying and rising again. And the disciples are like, why does he keep talking about dying? I wonder, were they questioning how the resurrection would happen? Right? Look at verse, verse 10. They're questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. Were they questioning how the resurrection would happen? Or were they still questioning why the Christ would die in the first place? So that what's, what, what's going to necessitate the resurrection? Wait a minute. The Christ can't die. I mean, they, they still have not gotten clarity on the mission of Jesus. Because most Jewish people had a general hope in the resurrection. There were some minority groups, the Sadducees, you know, they, they, they weren't into the resurrection. But, but the majority view of the, in the Jewish community was that, yeah, there was going to be this general resurrection of the righteous and the unrighteous, and everyone's going to face the judgment seat of God and, and you know, be, uh, face eternal consequences for their lives. Um, so most Jewish people believed that. The disciples were no different. They believed in the resurrection. I don't know that they're questioning how the resurrection happens as much as how, how are we going to get to the point where there's even going to need to be a resurrection for the Christ? How in the world is he ever going to die? It's hard for them to believe that the Christ would die. It's hard for us to believe that the Christ would die too. It's hard for us to believe that our sin really would necessitate the death of God's Son in order to provide a solution for our guilt, a satisfaction for God's justice. It's hard for us to believe that. Why? Because we don't really believe that we're that we're that, that broken. We don't really believe that the problem is that big. We think that, well, you know, yeah, I'm not perfect, and I've made some mistakes along the way, but it's God's, 
nature to be forgiving. And so in the end, it's all just going to somehow work out and, and, and it'll be fine, right? And that's partially right. It is God's nature to be forgiving. But to just kind of choose this agnostic perspective toward how it's all going to work out is, is, is very, very short-sighted. And it fails to embrace the glory of Jesus that he would love us so much that he would leave that heavenly glory and put on humanity and put on humility even to the point of taking up a cross and going there in order to satisfy divine cosmic justice for our sin, our betrayal, our treason. So, we, you know, our tendency is to look around and look at everybody else and go, well, look at how bad they are and look at how egregious that sin is. We don't ever look at our own sin that way. We always sort of think that somebody else is a bigger mess than I am. Our spouse's sins are bigger than my sins, for sure. Our kids' sins are bigger than our sins. My friends' sins are far more egregious than my sins, you know. It always takes me much more, you know, discipline and uh, spiritual fortitude to forgive others than for anybody to forgive me, right? That's always kind of how it works out. Because we don't really believe that our need is that great. It's hard for us to imagine that it would require the death of God's anointed, beloved Son in order to forgive our sins. We've got a lot in common with the disciples that are going, why, why does he have to die? But he did die, and he rose again from the dead that all who trust in him would have their sins forgiven, would be justified by faith in Christ alone in order to be reconciled to him and live forever with him. And that's true for all of us if your faith is in Jesus. We may not come to grips entirely with how you know, big and and, and, and great our, our sin is, that's okay. We want to grow, though. We want to grow in our love for Jesus and understand you know, the height and the width and the length and the depth of that. And part of understanding that, the, the, the magnitude of his love is, is to really be honest with the depravity of, of our sin. Okay? So hold on to that and just <laughs> know that we have a lot in common with the disciples who are trying to figure out why would the Christ have to die? We, we wrestle with that too. And, and they're still trying to sort out this suffering theme. They're coming down the mountain. Jesus is back on message about suffering. And, and then they, they ask this, um, it's a loaded question. It's, it, it needs to be unpacked a little bit. So it's okay if you don't get it uh, at the start here. But in verse 11, the disciples say, hey, why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? That seems like an innocent question, but it's actually got an agenda behind it. It's like when your, your kid comes to you and, you know, has, has a question, and, but you really know what's, what's behind the question is they want to watch more TV or they want extra dessert. It's that kind of thing. So there's, a, there's a, an agenda here. Uh, the translation is, hey, we thought Elijah would bring the great day of the Lord when, you know, God's going to get the victory and all, you know, all heaven's going to break loose against our enemies. Uh, so they were still holding on to this hope that they could avoid such unpleasantries like sacrifice and crosses and just sort of skip to the end where God takes our suffering away 
uh, and, and then, by the way, makes our enemies suffer instead. That's what they were still holding on to because they were remembering places like Malachi, the last prophet of the Old Testament, in chapter 4 where it says, Behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall shine, shall rise with healing in its wings, and you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts, this day, right? Uh, Malachi goes on to say, remember the law of my servant Moses, and behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. This is Moses and Elijah appearing with Jesus. Looks like the day of the Lord's at hand, and the disciples are still holding on to hope that maybe they can do an end run around having to come down the mountain to embrace suffering again. So Jesus responds, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And now, how is it written, he has his own question, how is it written that the Son of Man should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Jesus is referring to John the Baptist. He's the Elijah that came, the forerunner, preparing the way, preparing people's hearts for the coming Christ. And you know what happened to to John the Baptist, who died as a martyr. John the Baptist wasn't going to be uh, ex- uh, um, exempt from suffering. Jesus wasn't going to be exempt from suffering. Neither will his disciples be exempt from suffering. Neither will you and I. So how do we deal with that? How do we embrace the blade? <laughs> how do we carry our cross and, and not you know, complain, not grumble, not be kind of the, the disciples, hey, we just want to pitch our tent up here where it's glorious and good and just camp out here, right? I mean, we all want to stay at the top of the mountain. But what if instead of grumbling about having to come down the mountain, what if you and I could take courage from the glory that we experience at the top of the mountain? So that when we come down the mountain, we are bringing the blessings from the top down to the bottom. That we're not feeling sorry for ourselves that we have to suffer, but that we are having compassion for those at the bottom and bringing the glory and the goodness and the love of Jesus down with us to make a difference in the lives of those who are struggling and suffering and even bearing some of their struggle, and bearing some of their suffering, to lighten their load. Because our load has been lightened by Christ. We don't need the world's favor. We don't need the world to love us. Jesus didn't need the world to love him. He had the love of the Father. What difference would it make in your life and in my life if we heard the voice of the Father speaking the same words over us as he did over the Son? You are my beloved son. You are my beloved daughter. In you I am well pleased. How would that change the way that you look at adversity? How would that change the way that you look at conflict? How would that change your perspective when you're confronted with somebody who who thinks you're a loser? 
Everything you do is just a disaster. You don't need their approval. If you have the validation of heaven, if you're in Christ, the the validation of heaven that came to him comes to you. Which means that you're free from seeking this world's approval. And you're hidden in Christ so that the approval that the Father gives to him comes to you. And that gives you incredible strength to keep your chin up in the face of hardship and adversity. When you're confronted with opposition, when you're confronted with confusing circumstances, when you're confronted with illness, when you're confronted with difficulty, you have the validation of heaven because you are in Christ. We need the glimpse of this glory to sustain us in the battle that we find at the base of the, of the mountain. When we come down, we, we need to keep this vision of Jesus in front of us, this that's been hidden from our eyes because we only sort of see the, the humble Jesus, the meek and mild Jesus. We need to remember the, the Jesus of glory too. That's why we need these periodic times where we come together and we worship Jesus and we remember he is great, he is good, he is glorious, he is a king above all kings and lord of all lords and he is sovereign and he is working out a plan that will bring blessing fully and finally forever. And that's going to fuel us every time we, we leave these doors and we go back out into the mess and to the, the difficulty that we face. And even as we bring our mess and our difficulty in these doors, we are confronted again with the glory of Jesus. And we get the validation from heaven. That means that we don't need validation from the world. We're bringing heaven's validation to the world. Here's how you can have what you long for. So you can have love and acceptance and forgiveness and release from guilt and shame through our relationship with Jesus. Will Lane is a scholar and commentator that I've appreciated in this series, and he wrote this about this passage. This episode provides a personal and preliminary revelation that he whom the disciples follow on a way marked by suffering and humiliation is the Son of Man whose total ministry has cosmic implications. Cosmic implications. So when Jesus was baptized, he heard the voice from heaven, this is my Son, you are my Son, I, I love, I'm well pleased with you, and that was for Jesus' benefit. Later on, Jesus leads the disciples up the Mount of Transfiguration where they hear the voice from heaven for their benefit. This is my beloved son whom I love. Listen to him. It's for our benefit too. Jesus' life has cosmic implications. When our lives are united to his through faith in him, faith in what he's done for us, with a commitment to just pursue his glory and keep his glory in front of us, our lives take on cosmic implications as well. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for the the work and the life and the glory of your Son. We acknowledge that there's so many times where we fail to see uh, his glory as it it is. Uh, We fail to recognize that that he is on his throne, that he is bringing goodness to pass, that there is a future that is planned and perfect, 
And it is coming to pass, and we are every day one step closer to it. So please fulfill in us um, confidence and boldness to believe that what we do in this world and, and, and even today matters, and that it has cosmic implications, and that we can bring the glory and the beauty and the blessing of heaven down with us. So Lord, would you help us to, to have courage? Would you help us to have compassion? Would you release us from self-pity and, and worry? And just teach us to trust in you. And teach us to bring your blessings down to a broken and a hurting world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.